Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Jumpcast, the podcast from the award-winning team behind Jumpcut Online. My name is Sarah Buttery and I'm your host for today and I'm joined once again by Barry Levitt and today we are discussing Atlantis the Lost Empire. Barry, how are you? How are you feeling about this one? I am feeling feelings. It um <laughs> it's it's hard to come after the Emperor's New Groove to me. Yeah. I feel I think that that is like the kind of height of, of Disney going crazy. And they do a lot of different things in Atlantis too. Um in, in the in the format of it, in the, the whole storytelling. It's an adventure film. It's Disney's really like first action adventure movie. Uh forty one movies in, they've finally gone that way. And um there's a lot of exciting stuff about it. So I think it'll be fun and, and the two thousands are so different from the nineties because the nineties is kind of, you know, the it's a renaissance and really marked by those like big musical numbers. Of which there are virtually none um really until uh princess and the frog at the at the very end of the 2000s um so it's a very different era for disney trying a lot of different things and and kind of just trying to find something that works and it it takes a while for them to get there i think box office wise anyway Mm. yeah this is an interesting one and this i think i mentioned it last week uh was the first time that i had seen it as well so this was a brand new disney film for me and like how I was a little down on Tarzan because it followed Mulan, I think sometimes when the film precedes it is the film that precedes it, sorry, is so strong, it is always going to be a bit of a come down. And I think this coming after Emperor's New Groove, I mean, it's not its fault uh, that that's where it appears, but yeah, we both really, really enjoyed Emperor's New Groove. And watching this, I was like, it is absolutely fine and i think i got a lot out of it being a first watch but i don't necessarily think this is one that i would ne- keep coming back to in future but we'll we'll see maybe once we've had a an in-depth discussion about it we will feel differently but um yeah gonna gonna be an interesting one to talk about i think so um do you want to kick us off as you always do with your um history and interesting stuff that we need to know about atlantis I would love to, and since you didn't do it, I finally, I think this is my first time saying the IMDb synopsis of this of film. Of really So, <laughs> a young ling, I, I maybe have done it before, I don't know, doesn't matter. Let's pretend it's the first time and everyone can be really excited about it. A young linguist named Milo Thatch joins an intrepid group of explorers to find the mysterious lost continent of Atlantis. Yes, um, and we're we're now in the obviously this film came out in 2001 but looking back a bit we're around the 90s and and Disney executives are kind of noticing that sci-fi films are doing really well um and none have really done as well as something as the Star Wars trilogy but you know those are three of the highest grossing movies of all time so it's you're not going to match that always um but there's a pretty consistent slate of sci-fi that's being released through the 80s and now through the 90s that that are doing very well at the box office and that's something that Disney is taking note of because there's not really any sci-fi in there in their canon just yet. Um, and there was also a real kind of spike in teenagers um, attending Disney films, going on Disney cruises, obviously with family and, and, and so on and so forth. So they're noticing a, a large increase of teenagers going to see Disney stuff. So for the first time really since uh, The Black Cauldron <laughs> in 1985, uh, Disney has once again made a bold choice to target teenagers. Uh, something that probably set off a lot of alarms and fear and terror in the studio. Um, but I'm pleased to say that it did not go nearly as badly this time, although you could argue it didn't necessarily go as well as they wanted it to. 
Um, but the idea for Atlantis, the Lost Empire came about in 1996 at a Mexican restaurant where um, Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, uh, the directors of Hunchback, uh, producer Don Hahn and screenwriter Tab Murphy were having um, a meal and they were kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And, and Wise and Trousdale had just finished Hunchback uh, and they were pretty exhausted from it. It was a big uh, project, but they were keen to do something new. Um, and there were a few things that were really important to them. Primarily, they did not want to do another musical. They were very, very excited to do something that had no songs. Um, and they were really keen in, in on, on adventure films throughout their whole life. Um, films like uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, Dirty Dozen, all sorts of adventure movies like that are, are something that really appealed to these guys. And they wanted to bring that to Disney, uh, Disney uh, the films. And they kind of used uh, the theme park as an example in the various lands um, in, in Disney World. There's like Frontierland, Adventureland, Fantasyland, and, and they feel like most of the Disney films take place in kind of like the Fantasyland world, but they really wanted to kind of focus on Adventureland and, and create this sort of action-adventure movie, which Disney had not done yet. Um, so they conceived this sort of very similar kind of to the journey of the center of the Earth, uh, but kind of mixing elements of lots of, of adventure movies. And instead of traveling to the core of the Earth, they would discover Atlantis instead. Um, and again, it was set to be a big departure for Disney because this was their first proper action adventure film. Um, now, there was there's quite a bit of controversy surrounding where the idea of Atlantis came from. Uh, there's an anime series called Nadia, the Secret of Blue Water. Um, and there's a lot of people, including the people, and especially the people who created Nadia, the Secret of Blue Water, uh, who felt like Disney pretty blatantly plagiarized their work when, when creating Atlantis. This is something that, that Disney perhaps unsurprisingly denies. Uh, there was never a lawsuit. Um, and there were also a lot of controversies around the Lion King and um, Kimba and the White Lion. I can't remember if we talked about that or not, but but this isn't the first time uh, Disney has been accused of perhaps borrowing uh, some content from other places, but there's no uh, there's no definitive answer. It's just it's just something that's worth mentioning because it comes up a lot in uh, discussing where the idea for Atlantis came from. Um, and the Disney execs were actually pretty on board with the project. They were excited about kind of doing an action spectacle, uh, but they did not care for the idea of no songs in the film, especially that kind of post-credit or, or during-the-credits um, song that they would kind of hope to reach the top 40 charts. Um, so they settled on sneaking in Where the Dream Takes You into the end credits. Now, that song bombed, and I just watched this film the other day, and I can't, I can't sing a note of that song. And I watch, I always watch the credits and I, I listen to the whole song. Um, I don't believe Sarah that a single soul, including the people that wrote it and sang it, uh, remember that song <laughs> to this day. I, I, I do, do you remember the song at all? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, completely forgettable. Um, disappeared from the face of the earth. Um, I don't think anyone would ever mention it in their top hundred Disney songs because I don't think anyone really remembers it exists. Um, however, it pleased the executives enough that they were able to continue that trend, which is not going anywhere anytime soon, of throwing in a, a pop song at the end. Um, and Trousdale and Wise were also adamant on a few other things, including having no celebrity sidekick, uh, which was really central to the 90s and was indeed a part of Hunchback. And I think that's something that we talked about a lot is that did not work at all for Hunchback. And I think Trousdale and Wise would agree, which is probably one of the reasons they wanted no 
uh, designed comedic sidekick in this movie. Now, Atlantis has plenty of comedic characters, but there's no out-and-out Eddie Murphy or Rosie O'Donnell or uh, Robin Williams or literally just pick a film from the 90s and you can find one. Um, They also were um, big on having a new language developed for the film, which is pretty cool. Uh, so they hired a guy named Mark Okrand, who Star Trek fans may be familiar with because he was a big part in developing Klingon, uh, which I believe you can now be taught at various university courses around the world. So who said it wasn't a good idea to invent a new language? Um, and he created Atlantean, which is the language that they speak in the film. And Lastly, the film had to be done in an old-fashioned cinemascope ratio uh, in homage to older adventure films like like some of the ones I had mentioned. And um, as a result, Atlantis has a very distinct and a very exciting look, kind of similar to um, the format that they used in uh, Sleeping Beauty, which is expensive, but luckily this time they were able to recoup most of the costs instead of almost going bankrupt. So, you know, you learn from your mistakes. And you uh, you trudge forward. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so the crew um, in, of Atlantis set off to visit museums and old army installations, as well as the Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico, where they traveled 800 feet underground. And uh, that sort of passageway served as a model for the approach to Atlantis in the movie. Um, and developing the kind of visual world of Atlantis was really important to the team. And it was important to them to not have it as this sort of crumbling um, afterthought, but rather a rather thriving um, and kind of magnificent uh, locale. And the art director, David Gautz, um, you know, said that they looked at Mayan architecture as a major influence, but also um, works from Cambodia, India, and Tibet. And the circular design of the of Atlantis comes from the writings of Plato, who um, whose quote opens the film. Um, and when it came to writing the film, they, they really struggled to create this rather massive universe. If you think to what they just released a year ago um, in The Emperor's New Groove, it's a very uh, focused story on, on a small handful of people, really four people and, and their adventures. So, you know, it, it doesn't really have a big scope and you can kind of just focus on those characters and get it done. But Atlantis, quite a different story and has has dozens of characters and a really huge kind of like international focus and and adventure and kind of exploring this new land and trying to save this new land and and all of that and all this since Atlantis isn't real you know you have to create all the mythology behind it and all the history behind it so when the first draft of the script came through it was about 150 pages Uh, and for those unfamiliar typically a script is about a minute a page so you were looking at about two and a half hours uh, for a Disney film and the average Disney script would be around 90 pages in the end so unsurprisingly they cut a lot of it and they had realized that they clocked the first two acts and films typically follow a three-act structure uh, and they clocked the first two acts at two hours Um, so a lot of the ideas for Atlantis like so many other Disney films that we have mentioned um, ended up on the cutting room floor but they really struggled to keep this huge universe to an hour and a half and it is actually one of the longer disney films um it does clock in at 96 minutes which i think with the exception of fantasia might be the longest one to date there will be longer ones but i believe this is mm. i'm just trying to think in my head of like every single runtime, and i believe <laughs> they, right. they tend to be like 80 minutes or less and with the exception of two hour fantasia i think this is 
Maybe it's a little bit shorter than Snow White. Either way, it's definitely one of the longer ones up to now. Um, and at its peak, there were about 350 animators at a time working on Atlantis, um, with all of the studios, really California, Orlando, and Paris, were all heavily involved. Uh, and the film's visual style, quite interestingly, uh, was heavily influenced by the creator of Hellboy, uh, Mike Mignola, who was hired as a production designer on the film. And he really brought this sort of graphic, angular style, uh, which was really key to creating these characters. And they almost do, what I found striking this time, is that they, they do look like comic book characters. So I, I was not su too surprised uh, to learn that Mike Mignola, um, a very gifted and beloved and, and kind of cult favorite in the uh, comic book world, uh, was responsible for that. And the final scene of Atlantis, which is that big pullout that kind of starts with a, with a kiss and goes back to you know the entirety of Atlantis, um, according to Trousdale and Wise, they consider that scene to be the most difficult scene in the history of Disney animation. So they use the multiplane process, and the scene starts with a essentially a close-up of Milo and Kida, which is a 16-inch piece of paper. And as they pull out and you see the entirety of Atlantis, that image is the equivalent size of 18, 000, of an 18,000 inch piece of paper, which is about half a kilometer, um, and which is comprised of countless individual images. And each piece of that puzzle was kind of drawn and combined with animated vehicles flying across the scene to make the viewer see a complete integrated image. And it's always interesting kind of talking about details like that because it looks like a fairly standard i mean it's it's a beautiful shot and a great ending to the film but it looks like a fairly standard you know zoom out and for a normal film it would be but it's it's just kind of amazing to think of an a, a one image being eighteen thousand inches which is again half a kilometer that's probably like you know an, an entire block of houses was <laughs> it's insane to think that that was a single drawing um and to date as of you know, 2001, this was the film that had the most CGI in any Disney hand-drawn film. And that actually probably... St mm, no, there's Treasure Planet to come, never mind. Um, <laughs> but it, it has, you know, to date, the most CGI by far um, of any traditionally hand-drawn film. And the digital artists worked quite extensively alongside traditional animators. And there were about 362 digital effects shots um, that appear in Atlantis. Um, and Atlantis was also, in terms of marketing, was their first um, attempt to kind of use the internet and, and really do a major push on the internet marketing, which of course is kind of crazy to think about now because especially now when we aren't able to go anywhere uh, in the last year, you know, kind of everything marketing-wise we consume is really via, you know, television or, or the internet. But obviously this was 2001 uh, where the internet is is not new, but new for houses and new for, you know, family homes. Um, so this was really their first major push. They also, um, pushed via, uh, mobiles and they kind of used new platforms to, to advertise on top of the typical McDonald's who had kind of exclusive, um, basically kind of first look at all the films and basically they would always be releasing toys with the Happy Meals. I'm sure I have many somewhere in a box in my, my family basement, um, of, of Atlantis toys somewhere. Um, but they, you know, McDonald's and, and Frito-Lay and all the others were involved, but this was their first kind of new avenue of using the internet, which obviously now they use probably more extensively than most companies. 
Um, and the film was released June 15th, 2001, earning a fairly decent $186 million worldwide on a budget that was somewhere between $90 and $120 million. So again, not the level of a success that they were used to, but not a complete disaster. If you factor in marketing, it probably didn't make much money at all, but it, pro- it wasn't a significant loss like something like The Black Cauldron was. So their second attempt at targeting teenagers was a bit more successful. Uh, and it opened at number two behind uh, Angelina Jolie's Tomb Raider um, and was completely really dominated by other animation studios in 2001, uh, including DreamWorks, who released Shrek, earning $484.4 million, and Pixar with Monsters, Inc., earning $577.4 million. So it just kind of goes to show you the swing to other companies. And this is kind of the first time Disney is really, truly behind. And not just a little bit behind, but behind by... You know, really, these films are making more than double, sometimes even triple the amount uh, that Disney are making. And, of course, the key difference is that both of those films are entirely computer generated. Uh, And the critical reception was mixed with a lot of critics noting um, the great sense of adventure, but really kind of picking apart the characters and the plot, which I think we'll be doing, too. (laughs) Um, And this film has really vanished uh, as so many really quite great films have they've completely vanished from uh, Disney's marketing and good luck finding any references to Atlantis um, and uh, a fun fact to close off Princess Kida who is an who is confirmed as a princess you know is not one of those characters that becomes a princess she's a princess off the bat is one of four Disney princesses to not be included in the official Disney princess canon Sarah I'm going to put you on the spot do you have any idea who the other three are so these are um, not including like Esmeralda and, and Jane, who at one point were both part of the princess thing and then were removed. Mm-hmm. But like these are three characters who are confirmed as princesses in their movies. Okay. I I think I know one, which is Princess Aloni from yes. Black Cauldron. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the other two all, are harder because they're extremely <laughs> popular. Oh, okay. Uh, well, what sort of era of Disney are we are we in? Very, very me. new very new oh 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 um elsa isn't because she's a queen or correct well so both both basically both anna and elsa are not part of the official princess branding because they're right. just in their own like magnificently successful frozen universe that they haven't mm-hmm. bothered to uh <laughs> to put them in the disney princesses so moana is the last um the most recent okay. princess and, and neither um anna and elsa's are so alauni um Kida and Anna and Elsa, well, at least the thing is, Anna and Elsa, you know, are very heavily promoted to this day, probably more than any others. Uh, but Alauni and Kida have been uh, completely ignored, which is which is a shame. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's a there's your brief, not so brief, overview <laughs> of uh, Atlantis, the Lost Empire. Yeah, I was just uh, something you mentioned just now about obviously how this film was dwarfed really by its other sort of animated counterparts that came out in that same year is very interesting because in many ways this feels like big steps forward in terms of Disney's use of CGI and their integration of it with their hand-drawn style I think to a to a greater extent than any we've seen so far I think I would be willing to say that this looks about the best in terms of that integration of of old and new but yet even though this marked a huge technical leap forward for disney they were still behind the other people i just find that a very 
fascinating thing to think about that the other animated films that were noticeably more successful than this one was at the time were ones that were entirely uh cgi and it's a little while until we get disney do their first absolutely entirely cgi no hand-drawn film so they yeah, were it's true because even even dinosaur blends well dinosaur yeah. doesn't have anything hand-drawn but they blend live action right um, scenery yeah chicken it's i believe the glorious chicken <laughs> little uh is disney's first entirely cgi but no it's a, it's a very good point to bring up because this is a really interesting period where uh cgi is very much a novelty mm-hmm. um you know the the first uh cgi animated film is is toy story and that was six years before this uh in the meantime you've had oh, let's see a bug's life ants uh toy story 2 uh and now you know shrek and and monsters inc and that's pretty much it that's the mm. small handful of films especially when you consider that's what five films considering this is disney's 41st animated film um never mind um all the other studios who also have made animated films throughout the world uh through this time so you know hand-drawn animation is something that people were very used to and obviously disney and other studios have shown uh that there's new ways to push it every time and and in and, and kind of bring new innovations but this whole cgi thing is is very um of the moment and really t- today is even more of the moment where it's it's extremely difficult to find um any hand-drawn new releases there are uh some studios uh cartoon saloon in ireland who released the wonderful wolf walkers this year among some other films that they have are kind of they're really kind of the only major well i mean they're not even a major studio they're quite small but really one of the only big animated films of recent memory um are from cartoon saloon that have been hand-drawn there's it's a very there's not many left Mm, yeah because i mean studio ghibli and studio ponok are still doing hand-drawn stuff but then ghibli have just gone into their first kind of cgi yeah computer animated film so yeah there's not it's i don't want to say it's a dying art form because there's still plenty of people that do it but mm-hmm. i think it's it's certainly the shift is now much 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 more heavily towards computer generated animation as opposed to hand-drawn but whenever i see some that is something that is hand-drawn it just makes me feel so warm and happy inside. <laughs> There's yeah, just something well, even, about it. I, I I couldn't agree more. And I, and I love every well, not every, but I love most of the Ghibli movies. And even even their last hand drawn was was 2014 with uh, when Marnie mm. was here or mm. there. Um, and that was quite. That's you know that's going on if you go by release date of like May, but going on seven years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's you know that's a long time to go considering disney is releasing or at the time was releasing a film every single year um that was hand-drawn it, it's crazy to think that really their last hand-drawn film was seven years ago um mm-hmm. and their studio was entirely hand-drawn until their newest film um and that you know studios are really shifting dreamworks has never made uh, a hand drawn although they have a lot of tv series um that are mm-hmm. um or actually the the turbo series is hand-drawn i'm not sure if there's others but there is definitely at least one <laughs> so that's yeah. something and prince um, of egypt was and i think a hybrid, yeah I think. yeah um but yeah and then they have um they've got a kung fu panda animated series that i think was also hand-drawn right. but generally speaking they've got what well, after prince of egypt i don't think they did another hand-drawn animation mm. um and you know blue sky which is has now been dissolved but they did um Ice Age and them, and those were all CGI. Um, Illumination has all been CGI. 
um, you know, the major um, animation studios, uh, Leica does stop motion, um, which is which is different, which is exciting. And then Cartoon Saloon does does hand drawn still, but really there, them and and Ghibli, assuming Ghibli goes back to hand drawn, are, are kind of all that's left when it comes to to hand drawn because Disney hasn't done one since two thousand and eleven. Mm. Yeah, not many. And they don't seem to have yeah. any intention of returning. Mm. Yeah, I had just one final question that you may or may not know the answer to before we kind of get really stuck into talking about this film. But I knew because you'd mentioned Shrek, I knew it was around this time that the Oscars introduced the Best Animated um, Feature Award and that Shrek was the first winner of that award. But I was just looking at the nominees because obviously I was intrigued as whether Atlantis got nominated, but it appears there were only three nominees in... Yeah that in um, the year that shrek won is that why why that, is that that's correct um and it would depend um on how many films were released that year there are other years um when the actually for a while it's funny because it, then 2002 when when or 2002 when spirited away wins there's five but then it goes back to three mm. for a while yeah. um and they do that with some other categories as well including hair and makeup and it just kind of depends on how many films qualify um in that year if sometimes there's you know 15 20 animated films made sometimes there's seven or eight um so that's usually why um when toy story 3 won there were only three um is that the last time i think that was the last time there were there were three and there's been five since then because there's there's so many now Yeah, yeah um but yeah that that just depends on on how many um are made i can't remember the number um, but it's a certain threshold that if, if a certain amount are made, then it would go up to five. Otherwise, it's it's three. And that is the same for a couple other categories as well. But obviously, with the other categories, you're pretty much guaranteed that there's going to be more than a handful of live action films released in a year. That yeah. would be that would truly be the apocalypse if there were only like four <laughs> or five films released. And, you know, people thought that there weren't a lot released in 2020, but there were there were hundreds. They were just on, on video on demand instead. Yeah. Yeah. I was, was going to say 2020, but there were there were films released just uh not many people saw them um <laughs> yeah but um but yeah uh atlantis did not make it uh it was shrek monsters inc and uh jimmy neutron boy genius which i believe i saw on my birthday um <laughs> and i was so excited about it. have you ever seen jimmy neutron probably but i was that a, no was that a show that made it to the uk uh, i don't know it was if on it did nickelodeon right okay yeah it was a <laughs> i was obsessed with that show <laughs> We uh we digress. Let's uh let <laughs> before this becomes a Jimmy Neutron cast. Yeah, um, it did not make it to. It, it was beaten by Jimmy Neutron, which they were probably pretty angry about. Didn't even get nominated. That's the thing that that's the thing that got me. Or maybe it was, I don't know. Anyway, maybe it was because it came out before or the eligibility window dates. I don't know. Oh no, it was eligible. They just oh okay. They just, just it uh... just it just wasn't one of their three one of their three favorites. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> Well, maybe there's maybe there's a reason for that. Let's uh let's get into talking about the film properly, but maybe let's start with the animation because I think we've sort of spoken about it a little bit, but I did despite a couple of episodes back me being like hand-drawn is the best. I don't like CGI. Um it's not for me. I did actually think that this film looked pretty good, and I think for the style of film that it is as well, which is this big epic adventure fantasy sci-fi steampunk type of thing the animation actually looked pretty good and i think you get it like right from the start as well that opening sequence with the sort of strange 
spaceship type of things that look like fish is pretty spectacular and the final sort of dogfight style showdown uh featuring lots of different flying vehicles is is pretty spectacular to look at as well but yeah i think this was one of the first times that i think the the integration of the two felt completely in sync and they've been like borderline seamless yeah it really is and it's like i i can tell just because i'm i'm looking out for it but i'm not like oh that one particular thing is cgi or that one particular thing is hand-drawn um because they just combine them in a way that is that feels so much more fluid like you said it's it's seamless and you don't get that sort of disconnect or it feeling like it's coming from two different places it feels very much like now this is the technology that the animators work with and they use those two things together really really well agreed it's the the production design in this film is astounding Mm. um and the people who brought this film to life deserve all the kudos because it, it really looks great and the the aspect ratio decision to go that kind of cinemascope route is so wonderful and i mm-hmm. get like chills every time i watch like an old movie and it says like presented in cinemascope because i just get so excited i love the look of it i love the aspect <laughs> ratio um everything just feels more epic um there's just something about it that works so well and it and it really lends to this story because this is a kind of epic adventure movie that that uh disney has never attempted before and it's funny because epic adventure movies tend to be like three four hours long and this one's 95 minutes uh, or 96 uh but then it's a big credit scene so really like the actual animation is probably just about like an hour and a half um which is i think where the film kind of struggles because it's trying to fit in uh this entire universe uh that they probably would have loved if you know if unlimited resources and they had all the time in the world would probably love to have made this twice as long uh, and in fact, they did try and make it twice as long because the script was basically <laughs> double the length. Um, but I can, it would probably have cost oh, triple. Uh, mm-hmm. And n- n- budgets were not in the $300 million range uh, in the early 2000s, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really would have blown the roof off of what a movie could cost if they had gone that route. And and I don't know, obviously there's no way of knowing what it would have been like, but there's there's a lot of I think where Atlantis struggles is in its storytelling and and consistency and 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 plot and really making these characters um exciting and memorable memorable and I think that's because they they really bought into making it look so fantastic and 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 feel so exciting but then you kind of lose the heart of it. Yeah, I I completely agree and I think where this film struggled for me was in in its plot in its pacing and storytelling and to an extent its characters as well i think there are a lot of characters and given the huge scope of the film it doesn't necessarily have the the time to go into all of those characters we get kind of very quick introductions to all of them they all have their little quirks and the role that they play within this within this team um but you don't really get to explore that in in too much detail because i think there is a lot to pack in like you said you have to get that that sense of of lore and this epic huge story condensed down into into 90 minutes and there's almost too much and what struck me actually the the second time i watched it which was um which was this morning at time of recording i realized that it's like 
40, maybe 45 something minutes into the film before they get to Atlantis. And it's a very long time. Yeah. And it, it really felt like a long time because I, you see, you catch glimpse at the beginning when you get the sort of the prologue and a little bit of, of history and lore, but then obviously the main focus of the first half of the, the film is this team finding their way to Atlantis. And I was considerably less invested in that half than I was the than I was the second half. I think mm-hmm. that that half is important for sort of character building and particularly learning a bit more about Milo, who is the the main character in this team that's assembled around him. But also, I was just kind of sat there like, when are they gonna get to Atlantis? That's the name of the film. That's what I'm Where here to see. Where is Atlantis? Where is it? <laughs> Where is she? I want to get there Where now. did she go? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. honestly like. I, I mean, I've seen this. A, I've seen this a lot, um, but not really in the last. I, I can't remember the last time I watched it, but I, I watched it quite a bit as a kid, and I believe I saw it in cinemas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember thinking, like, where is Atlantis? Mm-hmm. Why, why are they taking so long to get to Atlantis? Um, but I think there's a lot of um, the prologue looks really cool, but I think there's a lot of issues in terms of kind of just like the details of Atlantis, which I think kind of sets the whole film up in terms of like its kind of um, focus on, on spectacle, which kind of removes its attention to detail in certain aspects. Why? Okay, these these so these Atlanteans, right? They're like communicating via radio. They're clearly very advanced. They have tons of like these flying um, plane type deals or aircrafts, I should say, that are seem way more advanced than planes and way more advanced than anything we can comprehend. So why do they use bells? to um alert everyone like mm. I-, I refuse to believe they don't have a better system than like ringing some bells Th- that seems absurd also there's you know that moment where like kita is like reaching out to her like doll but like the mom like won't let her go those like few steps back but then yeah. they spend like a solid couple of minutes stuck in one spot just a few steps away um <laughs> it's just there's just moments like that that just seem a bit like and it's funny going from emperor's new groove where they kind of like openly mock the plot hole of how did Ethan and Kronk get back to the palace before them. Um, and there's a really fun way of doing that. But this this film, by contract, is so serious um, and, like, so heavy right from the get-go. This kind of, like, we're watching this kind of civilization under attack potentially get destroyed entirely because we don't know that Atlantis is still there uh, an hour or however in until we get to Atlantis. Um, so for all we know, we're watching an entire civilization being wiped out, which is a lot more serious than uh, a talking llama running around. Mm. um and tonally this film is so intense that it's just like those details just matter more because they're they're it's such a it's so serious and it's so um it's not the kind of film that is poking fun at itself it's it's the opposite of that this is a very serious feeling uh film especially in the prologue um but it just kind of sets up there's there's a lot of things that like don't really make sense and a lot of films and stories in general kind of struggle with that logical flow but for example there's a whole sequence um so once Milo and the crew are assembled, uh, they're on this magnificent CGI ship called the Ulysses, um, and then they're attacked by like kind of the the guard of Atlantis, and he like blows and it, it ends up like blowing up and destroying the Ulysses ship. Um, so they all like kind of rush to these like aircraft or these kind of other watercrafts that that come off of the ship as like a kind of like a lifeboat almost. Um, so you see a, f- a couple of them surviving, but you get the sense that most people are gone. 
Um, and in fact, they say mo- they had about 200 people to start with, and then there's about like 20 or 30 left. But then you see like 30 trucks, and like all like where did these things come? <laughs> like where did they come from? Were they not just blown up seconds ago? And it's just like all these things have somehow survived. And it's just like you know those those things are 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 more obvious in a film like this, um, where everything is so serious and not always because it has comedic elements and there's characters who are designed to be humorous uh i think a lot are successful there is also a mole um who i think is anything but successful and extremely obnoxious um (laughs) but it's just it's just you know there's 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 moments like that and and then the biggest one i think we'll talk about later which is the whole an issue i have with atlantis itself and the people in it and and milo Mm. um but we'll we'll get there. But I just I don't know. It just it it lacks those that attention to detail that I I'm going to assume came because this is a group of very talented storytellers. I'm going to assume that it's come from so many changes and so many cuts to try and get it down to an acceptable length. Um, yeah. Because for the most part, the story makes the story makes sense as a whole. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's a pretty simple one. Um, that's kind of wrapped in this complex mythology. But really, it's you know, it's an adventure story about discovering a, a a previously a land that was previously thought to only be a fantasy, but it is real, uh, and they try and figure out the secrets of it, and that's that's pretty much the movie. Um, but it's it's it, they make it a lot more complicated than that. Um, but yeah, what are your yeah. what are your how do you how do you feel about the the story of Atlantis: The Lost Empire? Yeah, I feel. It feels restricted by a number of things, and I think we can sort of boil that down to time, uh, just not necessarily having the time to tell the full story because, you know, like we've spoken about it, it did, it was going to be a lot longer, but obviously you're still aiming for that family market, even though perhaps aiming for older, older children. Um, mm. So it is longer and noticeably longer than some of the films, particularly the one we we just had, which is very very short. Um, but it's still it, it even even that even with that sort of like slightly longer runtime, it really feels restricted by not having enough time to do the story justice and trying to cram too much into it. And it also, in a way, feels a little bit restricted by it's spectacle Uh, so it it has a lot of these sort of big set pieces and things that look really great and really spectacular to look at but then that sort of means that the it spends a lot of time with those things and we don't necessarily then get adequate explanation for Mm -hmm. those smaller things those nitty-gritty details and the things that we would like to know about because it would fill in those those plot holes and i think also just restricted by the the density of it like you've got to pack the the lore and history of an entire civilization into your film and also have time for a fun adventure it's like it's a lot like it's it's really a lot and i think that if disney at the time were able to make bolder moves and bolder decisions and perhaps had the the guarantee of being able to do this in two parts and with the same budget for both I think it would have been considerably more successful because you can then spend a bit more time with the characters and with the story and yeah it just it feels it just feels like a lot <laughs> like a lot happening and a lot going on and a lot to be invested in and 
all of those things because there's so much in it they're not necessarily given the time that they need to breathe and to explain and there are so many plot holes so many things that just aren't explained you know the thing that you mentioned there i think we'll get into because we do have some some problems with the film i think we'll we'll get into that but i have some problems again with how those things are explained away in terms of what the atlanteans can and can't do and what they're Mm -hmm. capable of um yeah it just i don't know i found it quite frustrating and i i really wanted it to be better because i can see what this film was trying to be yeah you can really feel like the love that was poured into this movie Mm, and the and the excitement of, of really making something different for them but i guess it's tough when you know we're talking about time a lot and running time and stuff and i think it's a very valid point because a lot of the films they're emulating are at least an hour longer than this one Mm-hmm. Um, but they're trying to tell at least as big, if not an even bigger story than some of those. <laughs> mm. um, and it's it's ambitious, which is always appreciated. But sometimes ambition doesn't, you know, ambition doesn't necessarily, tra- it does not, in fact, always, it rarely does translate to success. Because there's lots of people who are ambitious. And, and unfortunately, you know, they're not be able to become writers or directors or stars like they want to, but they have the ambition to do it. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't work out. Um, so, you know, ambition doesn't necessarily mean uh, anything. <laughs> when it comes mm. down to it you know it can be it can be key but it but when it comes down to it it doesn't it doesn't mean you're going to be successful there's a lot of ambitious projects that that are that don't work mm. um but yeah there there are parts that do work um it again it looks amazing the action sequences are very strong mm-hmm. um but when you're using kind of action to drive the story forth rather than um songs and i'm not saying this should be a musical i think it would be very strange and and i don't think it would be very good it would be a lot worse i think if it was a musical because i don't think it works as such but if you think of you know those 90s like renaissance musicals those songs are driving the story forward and telling us more about those characters in ways that normal dialogue can't for the most part um but this doesn't have that and instead you get pew pew and boom boom Mm -hmm. and various explosions which which is not necessarily a bad thing but you know you're using kind of that vital time that we could be learning more about what's going on in in blowing things up which again isn't bad because i think you need that in a film like this but it's mm. it's just like there's just i just don't think there's enough time to do everything that they were trying to do and i think if they either really simplified the story down um or made it longer i think it would work a lot better mm. yeah i agree i think if they just scaled back in some areas and i think a really obvious place to do that would be just in the number of characters it's a really big kind of ensemble cast and they don't have that sort of clear sidekick or or anything like that i think there's a fairly obvious protagonist and a villain who doesn't really become a villain until quite a way into the film but there's just a lot there's a lot of other characters and they they they're the perfect opportunity exists within the story to sort of scale back the number of people involved quite quickly because you know they suffer this big disaster where a bunch of people are killed and their um their craft is is destroyed so at that point i was not saying like kill them all off but like at that point well they do but then all of a sudden there's still like a million people (laughs) yeah you could have you could have got rid of some more at that stage and i i appreciate the this is a, a big kind of ensemble cast and real effort made in terms of diversity as well it seems like this it sort of ticks mm-hmm. every box of, of people from different different countries and different nationalities and stuff. And I think that's 
all well and commendable and it and it shows this sort of really yeah you know mixed mixed group of people who are all well you think united in in one cause but their motives sort of change um as the film progresses actually just on on top of that i will say it is very cool having um like a teenage latina engineer um Mm -hmm. with actual goals and and dreams and stuff i think that's it's a nice touch And, and they do all have um you know this whole crew which is put together in a very kind of like league of extraordinary gentlemen kind of way which i like yeah. like this kind of like enigma of basically milo is the main character who is um really is not a scholar but wants to be a scholar and has studied his whole life to kind of do that but he works on boilers um at a museum in washington which i believe is a smithsonian um but it wasn't called that in 1912 um but anyway, he he kind of has these big dreams of finding Atlantis, but no one, everyone thinks he's just talking nonsense until he happens to meet this or is introduced to this mysterious old man who was friends with his grandfather, who has like assembled this whole crew, uh, and then that's how you meet them all because he's he's done it all for him. He's packed his bags. He found his cat. <laughs> uh, the cat, by the way, never appears again. Um, I don't think. Did we see She's the cat a, again? Yeah, right at the end. When they're okay, so the cat back. somehow made it to Atlantis and survived despite never being seen uh, more than like one brief time at the beginning and one brief time at the end. So that's I, cool. I, good for the cat. She doesn't make it to Atlantis, but she's like with, with the crew who are like back and when you know. Oh, so maybe she, maybe the cat dies. <laughs> no, no, no. The um, because Milo stays in Atlantis, but the rest oh, of the crew will right. come oh, back. Right. So the so the cat the cat stayed at the at the at that dude's house. Yeah, yeah. The cat's okay. very much there at the end because I you better believe I was concerned for Fluffy's welfare. So I was like, <laughs> where is she? <laughs> where where Fluffy? Where where's Fluffy? Where's Atlantis? Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this film does take nearly an hour uh, mm-hmm. to get to Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Um, shall we shall we talk about Atlantis because. It's it's definitely interesting, and by when I say talk about Atlantis, we've obviously <laughs> been doing that, but I mean the specific location of yes. Atlantis, where this whole film is about finding, and they do indeed find it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's something, I actually think it's like a, almost close to an hour, it feels like, but it probably is around 45 minutes until they get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It looks great. Um, it it's really well designed. You can feel all the attention to detail and the and the the love put into it and the and the craft of looking up all these different kind of nationalities and the way they design to kind of create this mix between like South American cultures and and Asian cultures and it's it's really fascinating and it looks very cool uh, and the people in it look good too. But I have I have some problems with the general story here. Um, and it, it, it's this idea of, um, a sort of like white savior narrative, um, which to easily define it is basically when, um, there is a minority ethnic group or not a minority, depending on where you are, but a a non-white group that inexplicably desperate is desperate for the assistance (laughs) of a singular white person. Um, and it, it is, it's just strange to me because this seems like a place that has survived an awful lot. Um, and, and the logic isn't there for me because it's revealed that they are like thousands of years old, right? Kita says she's somewhere between like something like 9,000 years old. So mm. they've been around for a really long time. So my question, Sarah, is why don't they know how to read their own language, not someone else's language, their own language? Why does the king of Atlantis, who, by the way, is Leonard Nimoy, so that's fun. Why doesn't Leonard Nimoy, I think Leonard Nimoy would know how to read Atlantean. <laughs> so why doesn't the Atlantean king, it just, it, it is baffling to me that Milo, Milo, like, what, 18-year-old, 20-year-old Milo knows 
and can read the entire Atlantean language, while the thousand-year-old and my many thousands of year old Atlanteans do not know how to read. Yeah, the another thing they got, that they got nothing but time. <laughs> They're so nine thousand years old. They didn't think of. They didn't think, hey, I'm going to devote a few months to reading. Yeah, I think the 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 white savior thing is definitely problematic and you're i'm sort of reminded of some of the more like troubling elements of pocahontas although i think this is even more on the nose because it's that actually had a good ending where it was you know the they did sort of like separate at the end and realize that they they couldn't they couldn't be together it wasn't this like white guy going in and saving everyone there were many problems along the way but this is yeah this definitely has problems with that area and i think as well like what you're saying about the language is one of the things that really stuck out to me but also that they can't operate their like little flying uh vehicle craft things Mm -hmm. but then when they did like presumably thousands of years ago right and then and they can't do it now (laughs) this white white man comes along and is just like like, oh here you go (laughs) yeah don't worry kida did you put your hand on it (laughs) Yeah, let me just mansplain this to you, and uh, this is how you do it. I know it's like your, you know, your craft that your people have used for thousands of years, but I'm just going to come along and show you how to show you how to do it. This is not the first example of Milo mansplaining as well, because he does it to Audrey when he like fixes her truck or does something. He's so proud of it too. Milo goes yeah. through a real transition of being like quite sweet and lovable to like being quite arrogant and annoying like the second yeah. they, like start on this adventure. And I guess that's because like, you know, it's I I think that shift actually makes sense because he's gone from a character that no one is particularly interested in, no one or a person I should say that no one is interested in, no one believes has any real value except fixing boilers. Uh mm. and then all of a sudden he's almost like in charge of this entire squad and his goal to like discover Atlantis. So all of a sudden he's been gone. He's transitioned from being a nobody to very much a somebody who's mm-hmm. going to lead like the most important expedition in human history. So I, I actually, I, I like the shift um, because I think it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean I, <laughs> it does not make me particularly <laughs> care for Milo though, who yeah. I really adored at the beginning. Cause he was very sweet and endearing. And then he just kind of becomes a, uh, not not a outright jerk like Cusco. Um, I would presume Milo likes cheese on his potatoes. Um, <laughs> That's the <laughs> measure now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, the measure of a man, if you will. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's definitely it's definitely um, annoying the way mm. he is kind of like the and this is again this is you know you can if you haven't heard white you probably have but if you if the term white savior is new to you uh it is not new to storytelling so uh give that one a a look look it up there's a whole this is the first this is not the first and it is nowhere near the last it's a repeated uh kind of trope throughout all storytelling in which uh a, a group of people inexplicably can't seem to do anything for themselves despite in this case being around for many many thousands of years and also being like the most advanced people on earth or the entire universe all of a sudden need this like 20 year old boiler ma- boiler fixer to save them it's a, yeah. it's it's not it's not as uncommon i mean this particular example <laughs> is not very common but the overall idea of needing uh, a a white person to fix the problems of another group is not new and it is not 
uh, unfortunately, it doesn't <laughs> seem to. It's there's less of it now than there has mm. been because people are more aware and people are, are talking about it, which is good. But like, this is not a group that needed. They should not have needed Milo's help, and no. it's not necessarily. It's not. I wouldn't say it's inherently like racist or anything that Milo helps them. It's just this this uh, repeating of this idea that these that certain people in the world need a, another group to come in and take over. That's essentially what that that is and that's why people have a problem with it if you're if you're sitting there listening thinking like well that doesn't seem like a real issue it's like on the surface perhaps not but when you really dive into it it, it really is saying that they need this person to come in and teach them everything about their own culture that's what's crazy about it it's mm -hmm. not like he's like this is how the world works now you know we have dollars and stuff because they wouldn't necessarily know that because they're stuck you know a gazillion feet underground so they wouldn't necessarily know how the modern society works which is fine that would be an interesting thing for them to do but they don't do that it's milo being like this is how your aircraft works mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that you've been using for <laughs> thousands of years and all of a sudden no one knows how to do anymore also there are really interesting ideas that I think this film could have covered, but this is also another time issue, I would assume, is that, like, how has this society managed to sustain itself over thousands and thousands of years when they're stuck underground? Because before, you know, they were, like, in the rest of the world, presumably, right? And then now they've kind of, they've, she, you know, Keita's saying that they've been kind of, like, banished almost to this, like, underground universe. Mm. How have they sustained themselves if they all lived that long? A very good. I think that there's question. really that would be so cool to dive into, but they do not. Instead, it's pew pew boom boom, which again mostly works. Yeah, and I I think they could have, if you I, the the white savior mansplaining aspect, I think completely takes away from what could have been really really good about this story as well. In that it's I don't even think it needs to be there. Like it 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 creates more questions than it does anything else with. Like you said, how have they been able to sustain themselves all all this time without knowing their own to re knowing how to read their own language and not knowing how to operate their own technology or at least you know the the sort of the aircraft machine side of things anyway? You could take that entire bit out and and still have that two cultures, two very different cultures learning about each other sort of thing. Because yes, Peter would want to find out from Milo what the outside world it world is like and she could learn learn things that she doesn't know and milo in turn is learning things about this culture and how much Hun more 100 <laughs> percent, how much more empowering it would have been and made for a better character in keda as well if she had been this sort of you know she had been the person who had this access to better technology and better knowledge and all of these sort of things that she could have taught him because what it feels like is they are a helpless, uh, poor, neglected group of people that would yes. have lived a sad and uh, terrible existence had it not been for this kind white man and his friends who showed up to help them all. Like, it's troubling. That's exactly <laughs> the problem of the, the whole white savior complex and the white yeah. savior narrative um, that still exists. Um, yeah, it's it's frustrating. And it, 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 that's the aspect to me that, that it, it, not necessarily because... Um, you know, I'm thinking like this is problematic, rah rah rah. But it's just like it doesn't really make any sense. Like, mm -hmm. why aren't they teaching him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fact that he can communicate with them, fine. You know, he's learned the language, but why is he the only one that can read it? If if he if Milo can read Atlantean, 
the Atlanteans should be able to read <laughs> Atlantean. It doesn't make any sense. How is it possible that he can read it and they can't? Yeah. It, it, it is. It, it if if no, it's either no one can read it or they can all read it. It it just it it is it's it's baffling to me. You can like the the whole like not have like using bells to warn people thing and the doll thing like okay it's 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 silly but like you can you can let that stuff slide because it doesn't really impact the story and stuff mm-hmm. but this mm-hmm. this particular detail and the fact that they've been in, combined with the fact that they've been around for thousands of years and they live lives that are thousands of years long uh, <sighs> frustrating mm-hmm. to say the least but we've we've I think we've we've talked a lot about it shall we. <laughs> go on to our our villain because i don't think there's a whole lot to talk about um but can i just say when this man appeared i literally wrote and i hadn't seen this in at least probably like 10 maybe at least 10 years so i i did not remember who the villain was in this movie that being said the second he appeared i wrote this old dude is evil (laughs) he the the moment they meet each other like this is the bad guy i've seen this movie before and by this movie i mean like i've seen this kind of story yeah like like avatar kind of thing where obviously this is before avatar um or even like fern gully which is before this but like that kind of idea of like going somewhere and it seems like it's all gonna be great but you know this is the bad guy and you know he's not going to atlantis to learn he's going to steal and pilfer and destroy society so he can be rich um and that's exactly what he does that's kind of his whole character i just described his whole thing um and it is rourke um, who is voiced wonderfully by James Garner, who uh, had been in the industry for a gazillion years, um, quite the legend in, in war films and, and Western shows and films. So a great choice, um, great voice work. Um, and then his henchwoman is Helga, um, who has a phenomenal introduction. I was so excited because oh, it's full, so also so clear that she's evil because she's literally presented. If If you've watched any movie from before 1950 and you've watched any film noir, that is a femme fatale through and through from the shadows to the way she exists and speaks and everything she's great she's such fun um but she's so clearly evil that <laughs> um, you just know you just know she's not to be trusted um but she's a lot of fun but then after that scene her like introduction she kind of just disappears to the background to the rest of the movie which mm. is disappointing because i was yeah. i was excited for her i was like oh this is a character i'm ready to be the stand for this week but she then she then she vanishes so it's hard to do that yeah like she to me presented much more of an interesting villain because she does get this like total like femme fatale introduction and what i think one of her like first lines is like i came down the chimney ho 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 but she said it's like the delivery of it is so, so perfect good. and so yeah. it's very like yeah like straight out of like a 1940s film noir or something it's so it's so perfectly done and i really yeah. wanted more more from her and she's so differently designed and drawn as well she really looks like a comic book character like this is where i get that comic book influence she does not look like she is drawn by disney she looks like she is straight out of a comic book and i really liked the design of that character and i liked that it, it was very different and that we hadn't really got this kind of thing from disney before but then like you said she completely fades into the background and i found the villain in this incredibly generic and i'm glad you mentioned avatar because i that was one of the things i noted down that it's very similar and obviously avatar has ripped off like every film ever in existence but (laughs) it is literally just like if if, if there's a (laughs) film about nature and a different society coming to visit that nature you can bet avatar has seen it yeah avatar rips off dances with wolves pocahontas 
Bungalee. This. this. I mean, they probably all rip. They they all rip each other off, really. So you know, yeah, it's just inevitable. Yeah. That, For sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's just Rook is just like I think I wrote in my notes generic army guy, but. One of his like first things he says, or when he's talking about like the trip to Atlantis, he's like, "Oh, I'm sure it'll be a very like enriching experience." And it's this very like mm, he might like as well that. have like a mustache that he is twirling or something because he's a very yeah. kind of like he might as well have obvious... like a bald cat that's like yeah, like, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fluffy. Makes he's basically Doctor <laughs> Evil from uh, from from uh, Austin Powers at that point. Yeah, um, yeah, he's there. It's it's a miss for me. It's yeah, uh, they're not. <laughs> not really worth talking about anymore except <laughs> except really honestly really strong uh vocal performances from both claudia christian uh yeah. who plays helga and james garner who is rourke and i think they give it as much as they can uh mm. but they're very um rourke especially because he has more screen time you know he's motivated he wants money uh yeah. he doesn't care that he's destroying everyone um they do um he gets a particularly gruesome death um mm. and hers is kind of left more to interpretation whether she died but she did I thought it was genuinely kind of amusing in a, in a weird way that she drops like a hundred feet and is totally like, she seems fine. <laughs> she's like, ugh, like kind of struggles to get back up. But she doesn't, we don't see her get up, but she's like, she's alive. It was like the fact uh, that there should be a whole movie about Helga because she's clearly a superhero because she yeah. can drop yeah. unbelievable <laughs> heights and not die on, Im- die on impact. Um, yeah. But yes, it's presumed that she dies as well, but he definitely um, reaches an end. And there's a lot of death in this movie, which is why it is, um, it's, I believe it got a PG rating um, and uh, well-deserved because there's a heck of a lot of death and a lot of violence and a lot of gun uh, fire, which is funny because we mm. talked way, way back about how Make My Music is not on Disney+, Plus, presumably because of the gun violence in one sequence. So if that isn't there... <laughs> Sarah, why on earth is Atlantis there? There is so much more shooting, so much more killing, and it is not done in like a cartoonish slapstick way like Make My Music It. But we don't have to talk about that again. I just, I just, release, just release it. It's like one of the least offensive Disney films. There are way more offensive ones that are on there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (sighs) I think my my theory, without going too deep into it, because we've discussed it many times previously, but I, I maybe, it doesn't make sense and it should still be on Disney+, Plus. but maybe it's the fact that the tone of that segment is generally meant to be comedic whereas like other uses of guns that we've seen in disney films yeah like this and pocahontas very it is, serious yeah it's used a lot more like i have got this as a weapon because i'm a soldier or a person in the army and yeah. i'm going to use it to kill a person whereas in that it's like these sort of people just you know Tell, like it's supposed to be funny that they're shooting each other I, right I, that makes yeah. sense i get that i still, still don't think like it's it. yeah no <laughs> it should still it should still be on there hashtag release make my music um <laughs> see if disney plus listen to us on this um (laughs) so the rest the rest of this ensemble is you don't really get enough time with any of them but i do one of my favorite scenes is like when they're just like cooking and like about to go to bed and they learn a bit about each other and like Mm. why they're there um which you know most disney films don't have time to do because they're busy singing and and being spectacle and 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 they have they don't have enough time they're only like 70 80 minutes long they don't have time to sit down eat dinner and, and talk about their feelings mm. um so i really appreciated that moment um unfortunately there aren't many more moments like that um but you do you do get to know these characters enough i think for the amount of time that they're on screen uh you've got moliere who likes to blow things up um you, that's correct right or is it rourke the blow i can't no rourke is the villain i can't there's so many there's um... too many 
Mo- Moliere is the 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 guy the who digging. like blowing stuff up. No, he's Moliere's the, the mole. Yeah, he's the digging guy. And um, I hate him. Vinny. I changed my mind. Moliere is he's, sorry. Vinny blows things up. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> um, I will say Moliere is the worst character in this movie. It's not close. Um, he gives me vibes of Zini, oh. um, and other less favorable characters because he's gross, he's pervy, and uh, it's not interesting to me. And the fact that he digs into everything, I don't think is particularly funny. I don't mm. get it. Um, no, I, I, didn't like me I don't know if young I can't remember if I thought it was funny as a child but it's certainly not funny now um, and also shout out um, to Milo obviously voiced by who we didn't mention yet I don't think Michael J. Fox um, who is wonderful as ever um, but at the end when Milo stays with the Atlanteans and everyone else leaves he hugs them all except Moliere um, so he has good taste because I wouldn't <laughs> hug him either um, That's I remember writing that down I wrote I wouldn't want to hug Mole either attaboy Milo that's um, very funny <laughs> Yeah, so 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 good for him. Um, oh, also when when Helga um, reveals to not be dead from her drop, I wrote, "Okay, she's alive from her seven million foot drop, Slay Queen." She is a superhero confirmed, and would watch a uh, a spinoff film, I guess, that was like her superhero origin story. Cause... I'd like a like an Agent Carter style series yes. where she like solves crimes. Oh, that's the spinoff I want. That's the sequel I want. <laughs> yeah, I think that would actually be really cool. Cause she's a really interest. She seems like a really interesting character, and I just want Disney to do like a full blown like forties, fifties noir. Oh, um, sorry, which, it's all that I want. Which they <laughs> kind of get into with Zootopia a little bit. Um, yeah, but that's a while from now. Um, so they they heard me a little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's also um, Sweet who is gorgeous. Joshua Sweet, hello. Um, <laughs> there is. There's Audrey, who we talked about, who's the um, Latina engineer, who I think is is quite lovely, and, yeah. and she's quite fun with her. She's got her little um, bit of the, the two punches um, <laughs> for flinching, which I like. Um, there's also Mr. Harcourt, who's voiced by the magnificent uh, David Ogden Steers, um, which I believe means there's two left, and they are both very much up for consideration for our In This House We Stand. So mm-hmm. let's, uh, let's, Sarah, tell the people. It wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> It really wasn't. Uh, in no. my in my notes, I wrote slim pickings because there's not that many characters that we're left with, but there were two that stood out to me, and they, uh, in uh, in true to form with our in this house we stand, it's usually those ones that are sort of could potentially fade into the background, but we like to uh, give their moment, uh, their chance to shine because they deserve it, quite frankly. So we have two this week. Well, I think we have one clear and then an honourable mention. So yeah. Um, our I'll start honourable mention uh, to Cookie, who is the the little old guy who, well, he is the cook uh, of of the team, and uh, he is voiced by Jim Varney in his last role as well, I believe. And if you don't recognise the name, you will absolutely recognise the voice because he is the lovely Slinky in the Toy Story franchise. Just one and two, I would presume, obviously, because um, the other ones came later, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he has a great quote um, when they're talking about the food groups uh, because I think it's Helga who is like telling him like, oh, this is a lettuce, you know, they need their different food groups. And he's like, I've got the four food groups, beans, bacon, whiskey, and lard. And uh, he I love that. He is the hashtag <laughs> Fitzbo, um, if there ever was, which is uh, Fitspiration for those yeah. unaware. Hopefully you're unaware because it's an awful hashtag. Um, but a lot of like fitness, <laughs> social media people use hashtag Fitzbo, but yeah, those four food groups, was it bacon, lard, uh, grease, and whiskey? 
<laughs> beans, bacon, whiskey, and beans, lard. bacon, whiskey, and stunning. Yeah. Sounds good to me. I'd sign, <laughs> sign me all the way up. Um, he also has a lovely moment where his like parting gift to Milo when he goes back to to uh, the rest of the world is uh, a tub of bacon grease. <laughs> Delicious. Great for cooking. What a gift. I would yeah. love that. I, I love that when he like dishes up the meals as well, he says it is all different things, but it is absolutely the same like brown sludge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's pretty. Um, he's pretty. He's a, he's a, he's really fun. I, yeah. I enjoyed his presence. Yeah, a very a very strong honorable mention. But believe it or not, we have one that we we place ever so slightly above that. Um, her character name is Mrs. Packard. She is voiced by Florence Stanley, and she her entire character arc in this is just basically to be like a sassy, grumpy old lady who smokes a lot and clearly does not want to be there. And what a gem! I just every Thing she says is just laced with sarcasm and dryness and everything she said made me laugh. I think this is one of the last depictions of smoking we get in a Disney film as well so mm. she has that on her she smokes like a chimney and smokes for the entirety of the film which is quite funny. Uh, she sleeps in the nude which is a really great and funny gag in the film where they sort of they all have to wear eye masks. Yeah and she just like strolls past like with her face mask on like I sleep in the nude. <laughs> That's really great. <laughs> there's also um, there's she's got a couple really great moments too. There's a that moment when like everyone is coming together, um, to take a stand against Rourke finally because basically <laughs> it's revealed. Um, for those, I mean, you've obviously watched this. Otherwise, why have you listened? Because we spoiled it all for you. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, but just in case, um, you know, Rourke is revealed. Well, they're all kind of revealed. Everyone except Milo basically is revealed to be there because they they're there for money and nothing else. Um, and then Rourke is the one who's like fully like willing to tear apart the fabric of society of Atlantis and destroy their civilization in order to bring home this crystal stuff and profit. Um, so they all turn against him eventually. Um, and as they all, or at least this group that we've gotten to know, the other people do not, because otherwise there would be no massive gunfight at the end. Um, <laughs> but the you know, the crew that we've gotten to know all like one by one join Milo and the Atlanteans. Um, and then Mrs. Packard's kind of the last one. And like, as she like very slowly, very reluctantly gets out of her car to join them, she's like, we're all going to die, aren't we? Um, <laughs> a legend. Uh, unfortunately, she, she lives. Um, but there's also a moment when, <laughs> when the like Ulysses is being destroyed um, and like everyone is running for their lives. She's like still having a full blown conversation with her pal. Um, <laughs> and there is one devastating plot hole and we don't know if she got back to her or not. Um, and I will like I will wonder for the rest of my life whether Mrs. Packard could continue that conversation with her pal. Uh, so mm. I hope, I hope she did. Uh, <laughs> bless her soul. She's she's a she's um some great comic relief in this movie and a good example mm. of you don't necessarily need. Um, in fact, you do not need um a specific comedian brought in to be a sidekick. Obviously, it can work, but you don't need it to still be funny. There's there are some really funny moments in this movie. Mm. Yeah. Many of which are brought to us by uh, Cookie and uh mrs packard mm -hmm. it was a, a very once i sort of boiled it down to the characters that i actually liked uh of which there were not that many um then <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously like trying to pick out from I, I liked helga i liked audrey sweet is absolutely adorable um and there's there's nice characters in it but i was trying to pick like not one of the kind of the main 
crew and although cookie and mrs packard are part of that team they they don't have as much screen time and stuff in terms of the others because they are older and their roles in the group are sort of i don't really know what mrs packard does apart from be sassy and take phone calls um but she's just i guess like a secretary make the world a better place yeah Yeah. absolutely and and cookie is just you know there to provide uh delicious nourishing grease um so yeah they don't when it gets into the sort of the big action sequences and stuff they're not there in the same capacity as the other characters are but (laughs) she's busy chatting to her friends like being blown up (laughs) she's on Um, the phone to margie just having a having a little chat (laughs) i i want to talk about princesses because we've got one she is maligned way too much i think she's really well i okay so i think this film does princess kida pretty dirty yeah um i think this is a character who establishes themselves as quite intimidating and interesting and strong and fascinating like on, on first sight you know she, she's tough she knows what she's doing she's not there to mess around but you get the sense that you want to know more about her so the film responds by telling us almost nothing about her <laughs> um and kind of just spends i mean we we do learn we learn that she's you know like nine thousand years old which i guess is super super progressive because we're so used to the um male counterpart in relationships and films being so much older um, yeah. Then the woman usually the man is like forty something and the woman's like just turned like twenty and somehow that's like totally normal and fine, um, but this time it's like an extreme extreme version of Harold and Maude, uh, where Milo's like twenty something and <laughs> she is nine thousand, <laughs> um, so <laughs> I guess that's fun. But don't worry because it is a Disney movie. She still um is like a scantily clad young woman despite being nine thousand. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. shout out to Disney for making it work. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's a shame that I think she should be in the Disney princess canon, really. Yeah. She is a princess. Look, and... if you can have Merida, who's not even... I mean, I guess, okay, Disney bought Pixar, and, like, it is a Disney... You know, it's... But, like, all the other princesses are, are from the Disney, you know, quote-unquote Disney films, and Merida is, is not even from that... She's not in the list of ones that we're talking about, and she's mm. in there. Yeah. And she deserves to be there, don't get me wrong. Um, I really like her, but so why isn't princess kita there and there's another thing about princesses so there's two um that have been part of it before um esmeralda and and jane porter uh from tarzan neither of whom are actual princesses Mm. by the way um at any point in their journey um esmeralda marrying phoebus does not make her a princess because phoebus is not a prince um but anyway they were both part of it esmeralda um they removed because she wasn't selling as well as any of the others which is a shame because she's so much better than some of them Mm -hmm. um and then there is Jane, who was <laughs> really just removed because she wore yellow, and they didn't want to confuse her too much with Belle. Um, <laughs> Stupid. So out, so out, <laughs> so out she went. But those are the those are two princesses who were previously. I was researching about them today because I was curious if, like, has it always just been those? Well, now it's I think like fifteen. But basically, the the whole Disney princess branding only came in like in the late nineties, early two thousands. Mm. Um, so around this time, it was like brand new. Um. But yeah, it's interesting because like Alice, for example, isn't part of it, um, but she wasn't a princess. So why are some of the ones that were also never like uh, the whole thing is a bit confusing. Um, But essentially, the ones who were there are princesses, I think. I I think there's still a couple that like aren't technically princesses or at least you never see fully become princesses. And like they're just getting married in like the last second of the film or something. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, it's 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 strange that she. Well, it's not strange that she isn't because the reason her and the Princess of Lowney aren't is because their films didn't do as well. Um, but Sleeping Beauty was a quite a failure and almost tanked them financially. Mm. So what's Aurora doing there? Mm? <laughs> is it because she's the only like blonde? Because apparently um, Cinderella is strawberry blonde and therefore not blonde. Um, and that's why Aurora is there because she's the the, the blonde princess. I I have questions. Um, yeah. But I think Hida deserves to be part of it because she's she's more interesting than a few of them at least. Definitely Aurora because Aurora's asleep the whole time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's disappointing because she's also not white, and it would be you know it it's it would be cool to have more. Why not have more diversity? Why not have more people represented by these characters? Why not? Yeah. Um. But she she's not there. Um. She is good luck finding any merch of her. I don't even know if any existed. Um. So good luck finding it. Uh, mm. I would love to have some. I think she's really cool. Uh, yeah. And it's a shame that she get, kind of gets sidelined. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of interacting between the two of them, and you know, her and Milo fall in love for some reason. Even though I don't see what's so appealing to her, maybe she just hasn't seen like an a, an an appropriate male for her in nine thousand years. So maybe it's just <laughs> an exciting opportunity. But I don't know. Like she, he doesn't do. He just kind of tells her a whole bunch of stuff that she should already know logically, but mm. she doesn't. Maybe she's just playing into it and being like, oh, yeah, I have no idea. But then she totally does. I don't know. Yeah, but but it's clear that that's not true. <laughs> it's just it's disappointing to me. It's just another thing that prevents this film. I feel like this film should be incredible. And mm. I think that's where all this frustration is coming from. It's like there's so much there. Like it looks great. The, the action sequences are really exceptionally well done. Uh, the design is beautiful. The characters have a unique and, and exciting style. Uh, the aspect ratio really like lends itself to this epic story that's being told. But it just it just has all these aspects that stop it from being not only great, but even particularly good. Um, I just don't think this film is, is what it should be and what it could be. This feels like one of the ones, there's a lot of examples, you know, where you change a couple things and sure, it could maybe elevate to that status it needs to be. It's like really going to be remembered forever. But this has like, it feels like it has so many aspects that if you were just to, to tweak or, or let them kind of either simplify it more or let them go for longer, could have been really spectacular, I think. And I think Princess Kida is one of the core examples of what stops this film from being better than it should be or or what it should be. Mm, yeah. I I completely agree <laughs> with everything that you've said. I think that there is there's so many elements in this in this film that are really good but yet should have been better and it sort of feels like missed opportunity in a lot of ways. Um and I <laughs> just call it Atlantis the missed opportunity the lost yeah, opportunity. <laughs> the lost opportunity. There we go. We've uh, we've fixed it Disney. We've uh, we've done it. But does uh what I want to know, does the sequel uh, fix any of the problems we have with this film? <laughs> no, no. Um, so, so there is a there is a sequel from like the Disney Toon Studios uh, called Atlantis: Milo's Return, which um, is basically basically they were they were thinking of making a TV series like many of them, um, and it didn't end up happening. And it's just kind of like a few episodes that they were going to make, kind of like morphed into this movie. Mm. Um, it isn't good. I didn't watch. I started watching it again this time, and I was like, you know what? I don't need this right now. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't need it. Um, I've seen it. I've seen it quite a few times before when I was a kid. So I, I've done my time, mm -hmm. everyone. Um, but no, it's it. It is just so much. The problem is, I watched it like a meet, like literally once Atlantis ended. It was like, oh, might as well, because um, it's another one of those discs that was released in North America where 
they have both on the mm-hmm. one disc. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, look, I might as well start it. It just looks, they just look so ugly compared to the actual yeah. feature that cost tens and hundreds of millions, you know? And it's not their fault. It's like a microcosm of the budget with none of the same people involved. And I don't even think any of the same cast is there in this one. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I just, it just doesn't look very good. They do have like a weird like lizard dinosaur pet named Obby. <laughs> Sure. So that's a thing. Um, but yeah, no, it doesn't fix any problems. And it's not very good. Um, I did watch about a half an hour before. I was like, I don't need to watch the next hour or 45 minutes of this. It just, I did not need it in my life. I, mm. I don't recommend it unless you are like a huge fan of the of the film and just need more of the universe, uh, which it does give you. I don't know if it does it well, but it does technically give you more. Um, there are also rumors that there's a live action film. Uh, there's rumors that Tom Holland is involved to play Milo Hatch, but they are very, Milo Thatch, sorry, very strictly rumors. And in fact, the directors, Trousdale and Wise, who aren't attached to that film because it doesn't exist, um, have said that there's no, uh, no plans that they're aware of. And I would trust them over a Disney fan website. Mm. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I will say that they have, they are on record, just like pretty much every person who was involved in these original animated films, that they do not care for the live action remakes, <laughs> and they would really prefer that they did not exist. And mm-hmm. I, I think I can't remember which one of them said it, but they, it was something like, um, you know, every time we hear people talking about the these remakes, it's just like go back, go back and watch the original. It's still <laughs> good. Um, and I'm confident that uh, actually Atlantis might make a more interesting one because it would be because it would. If there's one thing we've learned about the live action ones is that they're for some reason way longer mm-hmm. uh, but this one could actually benefit from being longer mm-hmm. so maybe it would be interesting that being said again I can't stress enough I don't want it I don't think this <laughs> is a bad movie yeah. um, Atlanta's The Lost Empire I think there's a lot to really admire and, and enjoy about it I just don't think it's uh, top tier or mid mm, I don't know It's just it's just, it just has a lot of aspects that we've gone into a lot of detail about I think that are missing and it's mm. kind of funny because this this feels like um kind of the opposite tonally and everything of emperor's new groove and i feel like these two podcasts will also feel like yeah. the opposite because <laughs> emperor's new groove is like an hour and a half of us being like this is perfect let me tell you why <laughs> and this one is like this should be perfect let me tell you why it isn't um, <laughs> but i do think it's fun and i think that's why it's exciting to kind of cover the whole studio's output is that you know obviously you're gonna have films that really work mm. uh you're gonna have films that don't but you're also gonna have films like this which are really frustrating to watch because you're like this should be amazing mm-hmm. this should all the talent is there everyone working on this film is so good this i mean it looks terrific all the animation is i think there's a couple moments that are iffy but like that's just it's gonna happen like mm-hmm. generally speaking it looks phenomenal the cgi is top notch even 20 you know we're now on the 20th anniversary essentially of this film and it looks, you could tell me it came out this year, and I'd be like, cool. Mm-hmm. It looks terrific. It's its its a, a masterwork of, of blending that CGI in hand drawn world. But it just, there's just too many problems with it, and it's a shame. But mm. it's a fun watch, I think, for the most part. Once it gets going. Yeah. Yeah, I I it just have takes way too long to get there. Yeah, it really does. I have I have a lot of frustrations with it, which I think we've we've definitely covered in in detail. But I was just looking actually at where I've currently got it ranked, and out of the forty one that we've seen, I've got this thirty second. Um, so it's yeah, very much about right. in that sort of like middle to lower tier. It's my my lowest my lowest placed three-star film if that makes sense um yeah so it's it was just 
absolutely fine and i think i just found myself being like you said just being frustrated about what it could have been and what it should have been given everything on paper about it but i mean i i watched it with martin who also hadn't seen it so this is maybe the first disney film that neither of us have watched when <laughs> mm-hmm. doing our rewatches together um and he really liked it so he is a big fan of treasure planet and i think that this from what i'm aware is quite similar um in terms it's, of yeah they're both style like, and they're both the adventure kind of thing right yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I wasn't surprised when he was like oh i really enjoyed that and i'm like okay fine i didn't like have a terrible time watching it but i i don't think i would be in the biggest hurry to watch it again and add it to my sort of disney films that i rewatch every year or whatever it will be yeah further down the list for me it does at least it does end on a high note um and it's got that magnificent that that magnificent pullout that took oh. an outrageous amount of effort to put together but it looks it looks beautiful it really um, does. It ends on a strong note which we love to see and i think it starts on a strong note too i think mm-hmm. the prologue is a mm-hmm. good way of getting people in its logical gaps aside yeah um but yeah atlantis is an experience um and it's definitely worth and i don't mean that as a bad thing it's kind mm-hmm. of it's, you know it's it's an action adventure it's very different um from the other disney films it kind of reminds me a lot in of black cauldron uh, where you're also just like this should be amazing this should mm-hmm. be like unbelievable uh and it just isn't i think it's a better movie than black cauldron though so i think they've learned from most of their mistakes yeah um but i think disney learned from this to stop targeting teenagers because uh, they don't really I don't really think they do it again. I mean, Treasure Planet is probably the closest, but I still think that has more of a family kind of angle to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they haven't really targeted maybe Wreck-It Ralph because it's about like video games, but all sorts of people of all ages play video games. Mm-hmm. Um, but they 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 aren't targeting teenagers very often these days. That's for sure. At least yeah. not in the film in the animated film world. They have. Um, you know, High School Musical and Descendants and, and various Disney Channel kind of TV movies that have very much targeted kind of like preteens, um, but not really um, in the animated film sector. Um, shall I run through the themes? Yes, please. Alrighty. So, sidekicks. Um, we don't really have a particular sidekick. I mean, the closest is Helga, um, who is... Um, Rourke's henchwoman and is like many characters in this underutilized um man in nature uh this film is kind of all about um <laughs> white people doing what they do which is going into places they don't necessarily belong acting like they own the place and trying to actively ruin it for their own benefit um which i think is is a uh, is real and has <laughs> happened constantly throughout history uh, and this is just another example of why you shouldn't do it because you almost destroyed everything that didn't need to be destroyed and you all died as a result so there you go <laughs> um, absence of a parent is actually pretty strong here um, Kida mentions her mother that has, has passed away and you know her father is still there and there's no specific mention of Milo's parents, but when Kida mentions that her mother has died, he kind of is like, oh, well, that's... And then he kind of hesitates and doesn't really go on any further. So it's not sure whether he's talking about his parents or his grandfather. Um, and the grandfather is a pretty key kind of plot detail in Milo's life and a big part of who Milo is, uh, because the grandfather is, like, why he is interested in all of this exploring and presumably how he learned how to speak Atlantean, even though, Sarah, no Atlantean... <laughs> know how to read it but he can so good for him um and this film does not 
have um, a Disney death, unless you count Helga maybe, probably certainly dying, and then it doesn't look like she did, but then ultimately she probably did because she's not going to get out of that gigantic face. So she's dead. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> Indeed. Um, sorry, I was just distracted thinking about that. Now. What a fun way to end it. What a... <laughs> she, she dead. <laughs> she she dead, but alive in our hearts forever. Um, for sure. Okay, right. The, the, fem- <laughs> the iconic femme fatale that never was. Oh, that intro is so good. Like the lighting and everything is. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. It's so good. Okay, right. I think that is. Probably us for this week, unless you had a yep. final word on Atlantis. Nah, I, I yeah. spoke wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Everyone uh, listening knows what I think about this movie. Yeah. I would say people, we normally are like, well, to be honest, I think every single film, even the ones we've really not liked, we've said go and watch it. But um, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it because it's For sure. There's okay. a lot to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So just as we wrap up, of course, we want to say a big thank you to our Patreons for their support and they are chris wilson let there be like productions zoe baines daryl griffiths sam luck orla smith peter hodgkins andy meekin fabiana rosas hamish calver martin richmond manuel bento and per morton so a huge thank you to those guys and to the uh rest of the patrons as well for their support you can find out how to become one and all of the perks that you can get uh, by going to Jump Cuts website and finding out all the details are there. Barry, a delight and a treat and a joy, as always, to spend time with you talking about Disney. And uh, even though we didn't love this film that much, uh, we've got a good couple coming up next. So I'm excited to continue doing this. Uh, we sure do. I very much feel like we're on the home stretch now. I'm just, I'm, I'm really, I'm really getting that sense of we've not got that far to go until we finish this we now, don't. and that's exciting. We're more than like two thirds of the way there. Yeah, it's exciting, but also mildly terrifying because I'm like, well, what will I do on my evenings when <laughs> I'm know, not right? doing this? <laughs> we'll see. Uh, stay tuned. But um, yes, do you want to <laughs> tell good people where they can find you on Twitter and elsewhere? sure thing you can find me on twitter at b levitt 93 that's uh, l-e-v-i-t-t and you can find me on letterboxd at uh, b levitt yes indeed and you can find me at sarah buttery on twitter and you can find all of us at jumpcast underscore you can check out all of our written reviews features interviews news and more at jumpcutonline.co.uk and go straight to jumpcutonline.co.uk forward slash jumpcast to find out where you can find all of our podcast episodes The next Jumpcast episode will be dropping on Monday and we'll be back, as always, with a brand new Disney episode next Friday. We'll see you then.